Welcome to the Bardcast. It's Shakespeare, you dick. We are your hosts. I am Lisa Ann Goldsmith. And I am Owen Thompson. And today's episode is about the authorship question. Was it Shakespeare? Hell yes, it was. Oh, wait, I guess I'm getting a little ahead of us, huh? A little ahead of yourself, yeah. Right, this, but, uh, honestly, Lisa Ann, <laughs> this, this could be the, the shortest podcast we ever do. Right. Was it Shakespeare? Yes. yes. Please join us next time. <laughs> I mean, it's so, I mean, we had, to, we had to do this episode because you can't avoid it, but it's kind of, it's annoying in a way because, I mean, the way I always put it is, you know, to serious people in, in academic circles or elsewhere, um, thinking that anybody else wrote, other than Shakespeare, wrote Shakespeare is like being a climate change denier. Yeah, or a Holocaust denier. Yes. So, Owen, do you want to, like, give our listeners a, a basic rundown of what we're talking about as far as, like, Oxfordians, sure. Stratfordians? Well, I think most people, I mean, most people that are listening, if you're interested in Shakespeare at all, you're probably aware that there, there, have, there have been, for actually a couple of centuries, um, people who have questioned, uh, sometimes vociferously, whether or not William Shakespeare of Stratford-upon-Avon, in fact, wrote the plays that are attributed to him. There have been many, many candidates, people such as Francis Bacon, uh, Christopher Marlowe, Edward de Vere, the 18th Earl of Oxford, probably the most popular candidate these days, and just people doubting that, that Shakespeare, or Shakespeare, as sometimes they refer to him, or as even more disparagingly, the Stratford Man, could have written the plays and poems that we have. I mean, that's the bottom line. Yeah, I mean, and frankly, as far as I'm concerned, it comes from a place of arrogance and erudite thinking. Well, um, I wish they were more erudite, these people. They're just erroneous. Um, You know, I mean, to me, I wonder why there's even a question. There's so much evidence um, that Shakespeare wrote his plays, uh, and there's really kind of no reason to, to doubt. It's like putting a mystery where none, where none belongs. Right. And the bottom line is that even though they have all of these, all of this conjecture about who it was that actually wrote Shakespeare's plays, they don't have any proof to the contrary. They don't have any proof that it was somebody else. It's no. all conjecture. It, it is conjecture. And, there, and, and there's no reason for it to exist. Um, there's, and we'll get to it. There's plenty of contemporary evidence, but um, do you want to talk about some of the candidates? Sure. I can talk about some of the candidates. So there are really three big candidates for authorship of Shakespeare's plays. Uh, and they are Francis Bacon, Christopher Marlowe, and Edward de Vere. Wouldn't you say, right. Owen? I said those are the big. Yeah, three. I would. Those are the big three. I mean, everybody and his brother are often. Yeah, you know, I mean, everybody all the way up to Queen Elizabeth are sometimes suggested as as right, people that wrote Shakespeare's plays. Ridiculous. Yeah, of course. Okay. Um, but yeah, I think Bacon. I mean, Bacon back in the day was the big, big one, and now it's De Vere and Marlowe somewhere in the middle. Do you want to talk yeah. about Bacon a little bit? 
Yeah. So Sir Francis Bacon uh, emerged as the first candidate to replace Shakespeare. He was a leading figure of the English Renaissance, and he certainly had the biography for it. He was educated at Cambridge. He was widely traveled, famous philosopher, one of the inventors of the scientific method. He also led a literary society, and he was also the ultimate royal insider. You know, he was a member of the Privy Council, and he held the title of Lord Chancellor. Now, the case for Bacon being the author was first made by an American author, Delia Bacon, no relation. And while people had for a long time questioned Shakespeare's authorship, she was the first person to name an alternative. Um, although she believed that he, that Francis Bacon wrote his plays in collaboration with other leading minds of the time, like Sir Walter Raleigh and Edmund Spencer. So according to her- At least Raleigh and Spencer were poets. Yeah, right? I mean, at least they have something to show. Um, but according to her, the reason that Sir Francis, you know, is, and the rest of his learned people wanted to conceal their own identities was the so-called stigma of print, right? The notion that being a playwright would be a career ender for aristocratic politicians. But and to be fair, it would have been. It would have been, absolutely. I mean, you know. People need to bear in mind that this was, that, that, yeah. that plays were not, not just looked down on, but, you know, actors were considered to be little better than vagrants. Right. And whores. So for sure, there is a stigma if you're a to, for a nobleman to be associated directly as other other than as a patron with a with a playwright and, and a bunch of actors would be a terrible come down and no doubt at the very least socially stigmatizing. Agreed. But if that was the only thing that might if that was her only theory, that might be one thing, but she further suggested that the group wanted to remain anonymous because they had a subversive political agenda right? She mm -hmm. wrote, they were, quote, a little clique of disappointed and defeated politicians who undertook to organize a popular opposition against the government. So according to her, drama was politics by other means. She said, driven from one field, they showed themselves in another. Driven from the open field, they fought in secret. Yeah, okay. Well, so, so, so here's the thing about that, it seems to me. One, you know, correlation does not imply causation, right? I mean, no. yes, it's true. It may be true that they had a subversive agenda, but where's the evidence that they took it to the theater directly? And what? yes, theater what? is politics. And there was, a, and the, you know, these plays written, you have, you have to see them as, uh, as artifacts of their time. They're very political, sometimes dangerously so. You know, I mean, Thomas Kidd, a playwright preceding Shakespeare, was tortured by the crown. And we'll get to what happened to poor Christopher Marlowe. Right. And, you know, art is always... So that's the thing. It's all a conspiracy theory because she relied heavily on the argument that the plays contained coded messages about politics and about their true authors, right? And this was an idea that she didn't even come up with. Her friend Samuel Morris, as we know, inventor of the Telegraph, told her that Sir Francis himself had created secret codes, right? And other people have suggested that Bacon's, quote, signature is in the form of an elaborate code embedded in some of Shakespeare's play. Uh, yeah. Like, like all conspiracy theories, this is way too far-fetched, if you ask me. The simplest solution is always the best, right? And there's so much evidence. Why, why, I mean, why would it be Shakespeare that they would choose? 
Well, a scholar at the time, Orville Ward Owen, produced this huge cipher wheel composed of a 1,000 foot piece of cloth that contained the texts of Shakespeare's and others for comparison. He claimed that by deciphering the codes, he discovered the location of a box buried under the Wye River that contained documents that would prove Sir Francis's authorship. But, you know, they dredged the area and it came up with nothing. Right? So the argument- Sort of them, like Geraldo Rivera and Al Capone's vaults. <laughs> right, exactly. That dates me, but yeah, there's nothing in there. <laughs> well, so the argument for Sir Francis Bacon has been supplanted by other theories, which we will get to, but you know, there are still proponents as represented by the Francis Bacon Society, which was founded in 1886. Right. Well, Christopher Marlowe is a, a more plausible candidate for having written Shakespeare's plays in one sense, which is the fact that he was himself, in fact, a great playwright. Yeah. Uh, and, and indeed, the playwright who kind of, who probably, other than Thomas Kidd, most responsible for popularizing theater in the Shakespearean era. And Shakespeare himself relentlessly copied Christopher Marlowe yeah, early on. Marlowe virtually invented the blank verse play. Oh yeah, and he and his plays are brilliant. There's no doubt. And Shakespeare imitates them like mad all through his early work: the Henry Sixes, Titus Andronicus, all of that, almost plagiarizing him. Um, there's only one little problem. Oh, also interestingly, uh, Kit Marlowe and Shakespeare were actually born in the very same year. That's right. Um, the, uh, of course, a lot of people want to attribute, uh, you know, greater knowledge to Christopher Marlowe because he was known to have attended Cambridge and received his uh, his master's degree. As many of the the playwrights, the university wits, as they were known at the time, uh, most of them, most if not all of them, had attended university. And Shakespeare is uh, unusual in that we know he he did not. Uh, we can talk about Shakespeare's education later on. Um, but the big big stumbling block with Christopher Marlowe as a candidate for having written Shakespeare's plays is that he died in 1603. Excuse yeah. me, not 1603, 1593, even worse. I was just gonna say, he died yeah. in a barroom brawl in 1593. Yeah, and actually it's a, the barroom brawl, it's a little more than that. He, he, he died by being stabbed in the eye over oh. a bill. <laughs> uh, yeah, he was stabbed in the eye over a bill in a pub, or yeah. at least that was, the, that was the story that was given out. But uh, later scholarship has revealed that that pub was probably a safe house for spies. Christopher Marlowe was a spy for Sir Francis Walsingham, who was the, the, the spy master. I think his, he was technically the Secretary of State uh, on the Privy Council. But he ran an elaborate spy ring. And Marlowe had, had been sent to France and other places, mostly to spy on Catholics. Uh, there is some there is some supposition that Marlowe himself might have been an atheist, which was a pretty dangerous thing to be back then. There's actually quite a lot of proof that he was an atheist. Yeah, there is. Uh, and he was very, he had a big mouth, um, which is not a good thing for a spy. But uh, he there there are a lot of people who are known to be spies who are in, right in the location of that that public house uh, the day that Marlowe was, was killed. And we're pretty sure that's a pub in Deptford. There's actually a fascinating book on the subject by Anthony Burgess called The Dead Man in Deptford, which I highly recommend. But Marlowe was almost certainly assassinated by the government in, in 1593, and therefore cannot have written anything after 1593 when the bulk of Shakespeare's plays were written. So bye-bye, Christopher Marlowe. Yeah, but you know the Marlowians say that that only strengthens their case because... 
They say he was about to be arrested and possibly executed. And they say that he faked his own death and lived on for years mm -hmm. on the continent where he continued to write the plays attributed to Shakespeare. Right. Bullshit. Um, and again, anytime these, these, these theories, they gotta, they've got to stretch themselves into pretzels to make these connections when the obvious, obvious, obvious truth is staring you right in the face. It's like, why do we have to have such conspiracy theories about this incredibly brilliant playwright? Well, I mean, it would be one thing if there was, if there was no contemporary evidence about, you know, there was no evidence from other writers or even common people uh, about Shakespeare's life or his connection to uh, his own plays. Of course, people want, pe the, the Shakespeare deniers generally don't, deny that there was a person named William Shakespeare who came from Stratford-on-Avon and was involved with uh, the King's men, the Lord Chamberlain's men and later the King's men in London. They want to say that he was a minor actor when actually he was probably a very, very well-known actor. And a producer. Um, well, certainly a producer because he had a share, we know for sure, and even the, even the deniers can't deny that he had a share in the, in the, uh, in the company, which is how he became quite wealthy, in fact. But um, they want to draw this delineation between the sort of grasping businessman from Stratford, the Stratford man, as they like to call him, uh, and the person that wrote the plays and poems that we have under the name of William Shakespeare. But the truth is, there are endless connections. Um, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself, but I'm just going to mention one. Only because uh, one delineation that these people try to make is that Shakespeare was never spelled the way we spell it in his time. Uh, usually references to the quote unquote Stratford man are spelled S-H-A-K hyphen S-P-E-A-R-E, Shakespeare as opposed to Shakespeare. But there's at least one reference. Um, Sir John Harrington had a, a compilation of plays uh, that was listed in 1612, I believe, um, in, in which he lists some of the plays by Shakespeare. He, he says, he actually says, Merry Wives of Windsor by William Shakespeare, the way we would spell it. But he has King Lear of Shakespeare spelled one way, S-H-A-K-S-P-A-R, and then M. William Shack, S-H-A-K hyphen Spear. And that's noted in 1608. So, I mean, that, and that's only one that connects the spelling to the man. All right. Well, that, well let's dive in on, but, uh, on here. Yeah. So the last really big one, and this is the one that has taken precedence over everybody else, I would say, really pushed everybody else out of the way, is Edward de Vere, the 17th Earl of Oxford. Was he the 17th or the 18th? 17th. Okay. 1550 to 1604. Got it. Um, so... He was a relatively late entrant into the Shakespeare authorship wars, but for the past nine decades or century, uh, Oxfordians, as they've come to be known, have presented the dominant challenge to Stratfordians, that the Earl of Oxford was the one who wrote the plays. And he was first proposed in 1920 by the unfortunately named J.T. L-O-O-N-E-Y, and not Looney, like Looney Tunes, but Lonnie, in his book, Shakespeare Identified. Um, since then, the case for De Vere's authorship has been bolstered by famous people like Sigmund Freud, as well as the formation of Oxford Society's 
on both sides of the Atlantic, including one formed by a descendant of De Vere himself. Do you want to talk about a few of the things that they think makes him the perfect candidate, Owen? Well, sure. And I think, again, this, this harks back to Christopher Marlowe in one way. And I think we can talk a little bit about Shakespeare's education this way. Yes. Um, people that don't think Shakespeare wrote his plays in general, and Oxfordians in particular, point to a broad and deep wealth of knowledge that Shakespeare, that whoever it is that wrote Shakespeare's plays displays. Um, whoever wrote those plays seems to have had a great uh, understanding of the law. Uh, of medicine, of uh, soldiership, of politics, of the way things work at court, etc., uh, etc., etc. Et and the supposition is that William Shakespeare, the Stratford man, came from humble origins with illiterate parents, is of uncertain at best education, and would not possibly have been able, been in a position to know all of the things that are known in the plays, including knowledge of the European continent and geography of, of Italy and that sort of thing. Of course, many, many Shakespeare plays do take place in Italy. So the Oxfordians would say, among other things, that Edward de Vere was, as a nobleman, was in a position to know these things, that he would have received a university education, that he would have obviously moved in court circles, that he would have been in a better position to have learned things about the law and medicine, would have had the opportunity to travel in Europe and that sort of thing, where Shakespeare would not have. Here's the thing about that, though. So they say that, you know, there's no record that he even went to grammar school in Stratford. But as the son of an alderman, Shakespeare was entitled to a free education at the school. Well, and it's been more than amply demonstrated that that no more than a grammar school education back then would have been required to produce the works. So a grammar school education back then was not what it is now. No, no, not at all. It was very rigorous. And he certainly would have learned Latin back and forth. Absolutely. So that he would have he would have been he would have been in a position to read classical texts for sure. But let me underscore. Let me just build on what you've just said. Not only was Shakespeare's father John Shakespeare an alderman of Stratford, when Shakespeare was very young, he actually became bailiff of Stratford, which is the equivalent of mayor. Mm -hmm. uh, he held a lot of different very. I mean, the truth is, he kind of fell on hard times later in life uh, as Shakespeare was becoming a teenager. But he was a very respected uh, pillar of society for a long time and rose to the position of virtual mayor. So it's implausible that Shakespeare wouldn't have attended the King's New School. Now, also, people want to say that there's no record of Shakespeare attending King's New School. But the reason for that is there's no record at all of anyone attending. Right. They didn't keep records. They, well, they started keeping records after 1800. Right. So, there's, so there's, no, there's no record for Shakespeare, but there's no record for anybody else. So, Yeah, it's like rhetoric. You know, it, it, it's rhetoric. You know, they're saying, oh, he couldn't have done it. It demonstrates, you know, a lack of historical imagination. Right. Well, and, and it's and it's snobbery, you know, it's I mean, totally snobbery. Not, not to mention the fact that what a lot of people don't want to talk, certainly Oxfordians don't want to talk about this. Oxford's uh, Oxford's university degrees were honorary degrees. That's right. He didn't really study there. He was granted those because he was a nobleman. Yeah, I can so, think of other people in modern day times that have been given degrees for no reason other than their fame. Are you thinking of President Bonespurs? <laughs> If the bone spurs fit. <laughs> it's a subject for another time. We're not here to talk about assholes. 
Um, but yeah, well, I mean, so that's, Edward Devere was kind of an asshole, and we're going to talk about him. Well, you know what? Shakespeare was kind of an asshole. He was that's a he was a grain hoarder, among other things. But that's a whole other topic. That's a whole other topic. But um, his plays. So, what are some other reasons why 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 Oxford's candidacy is is uh, questionable? Well, I mean, and, and, and you and I have discussed this at other times, but the bottom line is that, and I think that this has some weight, that he was, Edward Devere was not a man that worried about his reputation, right? And, you know, he denied the paternity of his own son. He lived openly with his mistress. He was put in the Tower of London, for God's sake, for fathering a child by her. He, you know, it was reputed that he was always in the company of lewd persons, although the those could have been actors. Um, he sold off most of his estates. He had running battles in the street. Um, all of that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Now, well, but, but to, to, to push back a little bit, I mean, I, uh, you know I agree with you, but what, what people might say is that's all well and good, but as a nobleman, he wouldn't have wanted his, he would not have wanted his name associated with common players and, you know, ha and the social stigma that came along with that. And that's fine. Uh, when you consider that he wouldn't want it, wouldn't have wanted his name associated with plays. But what about Shakespeare's long poems, Venus and Adonis and the late rape of Lucrece and the sonnets? There was no stigma at all for noblemen uh, or even noble women, for that matter, to write poetry of that kind. Right, uh, but Devere, there is surviving poetry by Devere, and it is banal yeah, at it best. Sucks. It sucks. Yeah, I mean, there's there's nothing. That's another mark against Devere. The, the the surviving stuff that we have from Devere is yeah, banal is a compliment. I think it's 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 drivel. It shows it's nothing like Shakespeare, and there and there isn't any other evidence. You know, there's been a hundred years of occasionally extreme efforts to unearth uh, you know Oxfordian evidence, right? Uh, but there isn't any, and some you know some have even tampered with evidence to improve its usefulness, like uh, Ogburn, you're talking uh, like Ogburn. Oh my God. Yeah, he actually distorted Putnam's work, yes. right? Yeah, but no, but no single item of hard evidence exists to, to support the idea that he wrote the plays. There just isn't any, period. And there's tons for Shakespeare. Yeah, and uh, speaking about um, Ogburn, his, his chief evidence, quote unquote, is John Davies of Hereford's epigram to our English Terence, Mr. Will Shakespeare. Right. Ogburn mm -hmm. says, I cannot see, quote, I cannot see any interpretation but one to put on it. Shakespeare was a nobleman who lost caste by appearing on the stage, though he took kingly parts and played them only in sport. And then a little later, he says that Davy appears to be telling us that Shakespeare was indeed a man of high birth, probably an earl, who lowered himself by taking parts on the stage, albeit under a pseudonym. The clear implication is that Davies was addressing Oxford in this poem, which is a bunch of crap. And wh wh where is that even coming from? I mean, that's, that's all supposition. There isn't any, not even circumstantial evidence in there. Yeah, and for one thing, you know, and, and I'd like to read, read part of The Scourge of Folly, and it, the entire poem is here, right? Some say, goodwill, which I, in sport to sing, hadst thou not played some kingly parts in sport, thou hadst been a companion for a king, and been a king among the meaner sort. Some others rail, but rail as they think fit, thou hast no railing but a reigning wit. And honesty thou sowst, which they do reap, so to increase their stock, which they do keep. So now here's the thing, right? This is playful, right? It's mm -hmm. casual, it's jocular, you know? Davies writes poems to stage figures and poets that are fun. 
In contrast, his poems to members of the nobility are very serious and very respectful. For example, his poem to King James begins, for bounty, clemency, and chastity, three virtues which in Caesars seldom meet. No king that ever swayed this monarchy to rules of grace and peace hath made so meet. I mean, come on. Well, so what can you, do you know what years those are, both of those? I don't know what the dates are. There's no dates here. Okay, well, I guess it's not that important. But but speaking of uh, speaking of things written about Shakespeare and poetry written about Shakespeare, can we talk about the folio? Yes, please. I mean, why? Okay, so the folio, the first folio of Shakespeare, printed in 1623, seven years after Shakespeare's death, um, is a compendium of Shakespeare's plays. Um, published at the behest of Hemings and Condell, who were two actors in The King's Men, who were friends of Shakespeare, who are actually left bequests by him in Shakespeare's will. So we know that they knew him, right? Right, right. And so actually, thank God, they, they published the first folio because it contains, I misremember exactly how many plays, but a ton of Shakespeare's plays that were never printed anywhere else. That's so right. if it weren't for the first folio, we would not have a bunch of stuff that it would be very sad not to have. Um, also, one of the most famous portraits of Shakespeare, the Drows Out portrait, is uh, on the frontispiece. And it's accompanied by a little tiny poem by Ben Jonson, who, for people who don't know, was a, a very, very famous playwright of Shakespeare, uh, and Shakespeare contemporary, um, who writes to the reader, this figure that thou here seest put, it was for gentle Shakespeare cut wherein the graver had a strife with nature to outdo the life. Oh, could he have but drawn his wit as well in brass as he hath hit his face, the print would then surpass all that was ever writ in brass. But since he cannot, reader, look not on his picture, but his book. So there's a direct reference in this, the folio, which is clearly called the first folio of Shakespeare by Ben Jonson. Also, there is another reference in the folio uh, by Ben Jonson, who, when he says, Sweet swan of Avon, what a sight it were to see thee in our waters yet appear and make those flights upon the banks of Thames that did, so did take Eliza and our James. So there he references uh, Shakespeare's hometown, right? Stratford-upon-Avon. Right. So, so what in the world would be Ben Jonson's motivation to write an epitaph for Shakespeare and to call him the sweet swan of Avon referencing his hometown in a compendium of his, of his works. Well, they say that that could sweet swan of Avon could relate to uh, Mary Sidney. Right, I've heard this one. You wanna tell people about this one? This is the biggest stretch I've ever heard in my life. Okay, so <laughs> Mary Sidney, um, they say that it related to her because she was very sweet and because her name, uh, Sydney, sounds like Signy, which is French for the swan. I mean, it's just, it's a bunch of crap. Yeah, it is. I mean, it just, I mean, and again, you have to stretch yourself in knots to, to make sense of this. When, when the direct reference by Ben Jonson to Shakespeare is the Swan of Avon, where, by the way, if you've been to Stratford-upon-Avon, there's a bunch of swans that are on that lake. On, the, on that river, rather. So yeah. it's quite I mean, honest. Now, granted, Mary Sidney was the most educated woman in England, you know, comparable to oh, no. Elizabeth. She was awesome. So she led an inf influential literary circle. She was the first woman to publish a play in English, you know, a closet drama, but come on. Actually, that was Elizabeth Carey who had the first play published in English. But Mary Sidney was not to be trifled with, but she did not write Shakespeare. No. 
So what are some, I mean, people want to say that Shakespeare didn't write Shakespeare because he couldn't have traveled on the continent and, uh, and, and De Vere could have and did, right? Yeah. So w what's, what's wrong with this? For one thing, you know, I've never been to France, but I'm pretty sure that if I had to, you know, there's enough information out there and, and there's enough people I know who have been there so that if I had to write something that was believably French, I could do that? Sure. Um, but, and, I, and I bet you'd have a pretty good chance of getting things a little more right than Shakespeare did because Shakespeare's references to Europe and Italy are yeah, filled wrong. with mistakes. Yeah, there's lots of mistakes. I mean, just for instance, um, we, were reading, we were reading The Winter's Tale together recently, were we not? We and, and, and Shakespeare puts a seacoast in Bohemia. Which is ridiculous. Which, which is a landlocked nation. Right. Uh, it's funny. I actually, when I, I was working on The Tempest a couple of years ago, I was directing it, and I have a map of Italy that my wife and I got when we were in uh, on the Amalfi Coast. It's a Renaissance map of Italy, and it shows the Duchy of Milan, where the, the Tempest, the backstory of The Tempest takes place, and the story goes that Prospero was set out to sea um, and, and, you know, set adrift. But Milan itself is also a landlocked duchy. So he got that wrong, too. Ugh. You know, and, and on and on and on. Uh, if you visited the city of Verona, you probably will know that, that it has a huge gladiatorial coliseum in the middle of the town. Shakespeare wrote two plays set in Verona, one of, in one of which there's a whole lot of fighting and nobody ever mentions the coliseum. So he, he, he was making stuff up, which is fine, but it doesn't betray an intimate knowledge of the continent. No. And I mean, there were also, you know, like, like, uh, Hemings and Condell, they worked with him for more than 20 years. Yes. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, and, and, he, and he left them stuff in his will. So their, their relationship is clear. Why would they bring out this type? I mean, and it was quite a bit of work and at great cost to produce the folio. Why would they do it? Yeah. And, you know, in 1641, four years after Johnson's death, private notes written during his later life were published. And so, you know, like... In comments, he criticizes Shakespeare's casual approach to playwriting, but he praises Shakespeare as a person, you know? Well, and, and the most important thing about that is not praise or criticism, but that he mentions him. Right. I mean, you don't have to, it's not, this is not a matter of what, like whether or not he was a great guy or, or whether Johnson liked his work or didn't like his work. He references him directly. Right. You know, Two of the three Parnassus plays that were sub produced at uh, St. John's College in Cambridge near the beginning of the 17th century mentioned Shakespeare as an actor, poet, and playwright who lacked a university education, right? right? In the first part, two separate characters refer to him as sweet Mr. Shakespeare. In the second part, the anonymous playwright has the actor Kemp say to the actor Burbage, few of the university men pen plays well. Why, here's our fellow Shakespeare puts them all down. Right. Well, and, and John, okay, here's another reference. John Webster, another very famous contemporary playwright. The White Devil, right. right. Who wrote The Duchess of Malfi and The White Devil. In 1612, uh, this, this is actually from Webster's dedication to, uh, to, to the White, or excuse me, the introduction to The White Devil. He references a bunch of people. Uh, he talks about the labored and understanding works of Master Johnson. Obviously, that's Ben Johnson. The no less worthy composures of both worthily excellent Master Beaumont and Master Fletcher. And lastly, with, and I'm quoting here, without wrong last to be named, the right, happy, and copious industry of Mr. Shakespeare. Right. And in a verse letter to Ben Johnson, 
dated about 1608, Francis Beaumont alludes to several playwrights, including Shakespeare, and he writes, here I would let slip, if I had any in me, scholarship, and from all learning keep these lines as clear as Shakespeare's best are, which our heirs shall hear, preachers apt to their auditors to show how far sometimes a mortal man may go by the dim light of nature. I mean, it's just, it's never ending. I mean, the truth is I could go on and on. I'm going to actually recommend a website for people to go to. There's a website called Shakespeare Documented at Folger.edu. And it is so filled with re references during Shakespeare's lifetime to him as a, uh, as a playwright that it will make your head spin. Um, you know, it's just, I mean, he's listed endlessly and yeah. referenced endlessly. It's just, I mean, it's all there. I didn't even know about this. Oh yeah, it's it's yeah, check it out. Oh my it's god, really, look at this! No, it it goes on and on. I mean, I and I have. I mean, I seriously. On. I don't want to. I I could I could read this and we'd be here for an hour and a half. You know, I suppose it's worth mentioning one of the most famous ones from Robert Greene's Groatsworth of Wit. Robert Greene was another one of the university wits, and they were they. I think they were clearly a little bit jealous of Shakespeare because this is 1592, right. so it's very early in Shakespeare's career. And Robert Greene, who was actually dying, wrote this book called A Groatsworth of Wit, which was a big screed against a lot of stuff that was happening in London at the time. Um, and it, he, he warns people like Christopher Marlowe, fellow playwrights like Thomas Nash and Christopher Marlowe, to stay away from actors who also write for the stage. <laughs> especially, <laughs> does that sound familiar? Yeah. Especially, especially one that he calls, and I'm quoting now, an upstart crow, beautified with our feathers, that with his tiger's heart wrapped in a player's hide, supposes he is as well able to bombast out a blank verse as the best of you, and being an absolute Johannes factotum in his own conceit, the only shake scene in a country. Oh, man. For, th for those that don't know, Tiger's Heart Wrapped in a Player's Hide is a clear reference to uh, Tiger's Heart Wrapped in a Woman's Hide from Henry VI, which is written by Shakespeare. So there in 1592, at the very beginning of Shakespeare's career, another writer is referencing and complaining about him, to be sure. But shake scene in a country? Uh, who is that? De Vere? I don't think so. Right. I mean, it's just, seriously, I, I could go on and on, but I won't because well, I think I was, the case is made. And I was mentioning this to you earlier that in 1988, right? Oh, I love this. This is so great, right? Um, they held a moot court debate with the Supreme Court, with three Supreme Court justices held in Washington, right? Representing the Exfordians was Peter Jazzy, and representing the Stratfordians was James Boyle. So... They both got up, they talked about everything. The first anti-Stratfordian writer was James Wilmot, who was like researching a book about Shakespeare's life, you know, talked about the father, his father being illegitimate, blah, blah, blah. There were no diaries, letters, blah, 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 all this kind of stuff. The bottom line is that after this moot court debate, all three Supreme Court justices sided with the Stratfordians that the plays were indeed written by William Shakespeare. <laughs> of course they did. It's like, really? Oh right. Well, so one, la one last thing. And that's actually on C-SPAN, by the way. You can still watch it. That's, I'm, sure it's, all over, it I'm sure it's all over YouTube as well. Ah! Um, so just one last thing about Oxford. Remember how we were talking about Marlowe's candidacy being hampered by the fact that he died in 1593? Yeah. So too early to have written Shakespeare. You know, obviously there's a whole wealth of 
plays after that. Well, right. Oxford, De Vere died in 1604. Right. After with and so Shakespeare's, there are many Shakespeare plays, you know, little plays like King Lear and Othello and plays like that, that were written after 1604. And, and some people want to, some Oxfordians would like you to believe that uh, these plays could have been written before 1604 and disseminated somehow after his death. But there are so many references. Disseminate them after I'm dead, so nobody knows it was me. Right. I mean, just for instance, right, uh, 1604 is before John Fletcher, another playwright, arrived on the scene with whom we know that Shakespeare collaborated on at least three plays. Uh, the gunpowder plot, very important to the writing of Macbeth. The food riots of 1607, which provide the entire context of Coriolanus, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, obviously, the, the, we all know that the companies moved indoors, at least partially, to the Blackfriars Theatre uh, in 1608, I think it is. Uh, and The Winter's Tale and Cymbeline were clearly, and The Tempest for that matter, were clearly written to be performed indoors, which you can tell from the stage directions. Uh, and of course, the source material for The Tempest about that expedition to the Bermudas, that, that wasn't published until I think 1609. Uh, and The Tempest could not have been written without it. It is very clear. So Oxford's death in 1604 makes the ent his entire candidacy a complete and utter non-starter. Yeah. Yeah. Although I will say that um, Justice Stevens ultimately became an Oxfordian. Which is kind of sad. It is really sad. There, 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 well, I, I, I hesitate to get into this, but there are other anti-Stratfordians in the world whom I'm a great admirer of. Um, but there are, there are a number of people. All I will say is if you see that horrible movie, Anonymous. Oh God. The Roland Emmerich movie, Roland Emmerich, such a Shakespearean scholar, you know, it's all over movies like, uh, you know, the uh, 2012, the disaster movies. Anyway, um, Anonymous is a movie for anybody that hasn't seen it. And I do not recommend that you do that absolutely purports um, to tell the story of, of uh, Edward de Vere, the Earl of Oxford writing Shakespeare's plays. Uh, and it is filled with error. I mean, hilarious error from start to finish, but it also includes a, a, a handful of really great Shakespearean actors. Some of the greatest Shakespearean actors alive today who lent their names, unfortunately, to this this project, and I'm not going to name check them because I have too much respect. Yeah. Oh, I, I want to correct myself. I said uh, 1988. It was September 29th, 1987. Oh, no. You got it wrong by a year? I, I, I did. We're going to have to get the cuffs ready. <laughs> the bottom line is that the Oxfordians did not prove their case. Because they have none. Right. They have none. Um, I, I don't know. I, th I, I, I kind of feel like our case has been rested. I think our case has been rested. I think we've, we've made our point. And of course, as always, if you have anything to say about this topic, please do send us an email. You can uh, contact us at www.thebardcastudick.com. Absolutely. We would love to hear from you, especially if you disagree with us. Oh, yeah. We're looking for a fight, people. We're looking for it. <laughs> Bring it on. All right. Yeah, because you're, you're bringing a case. You're bringing a case that Shakespeare didn't write his play. So the burden of proof is on you. Reasonable doubt would be for the defense to say, 
A defense attorney, a defense attorney has reasonable doubt in his pocket. The prosecution has to prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt. Right, right. The burden of proof was definitely on the Oxfordians and they did not prove it. No. They have, they have a meritless case. Yeah. I mean, this was really interesting. Each man had 45 minutes to make his case and 15 minutes for rebuttal. Hmm. I will have to watch that. But where the, where the Stratfordian Oxfordian thing, you know, is, I mean, to be fair, and a lot of people will say, what does it matter? We have the plays. What does it matter who wrote them? And I guess that there's truth to that, but God damn it. Shakespeare wrote his plays. Yeah, I agree with you. And it, and it, 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 it's, it, it just, it irks me that people like that, you know, people I admire so much as Derek Jacobi and, um, and Mark Rylance are in this camp. So anyway, please join us again for our next episode, Film Shakespeare, where we will be discussing the sometimes fabulous and sometimes horrendous ways that people have adapted Shakespeare plays for film. And be sure to visit our website at www.thebardcastudick.com and be sure to like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Look at our show notes for links to our podcast charity, The Actors Fund, and if you like what you're hearing, please become a patron of our pod with the link provided to patreon.com. And if you can't give us money, then please leave us a five-star rating and write a review wherever you get your podcasts. And until we meet again, remember... It's Shakespeare, you dick! The preceding podcast was a production of Country Matters, LLC, copyright 2020, all rights reserved.